0: quasi my talk, because I I have a particular way about this it was before the pandemic. So I look at us, none of us wear masks, we're quite confident that we will escape. I have um, spent a week thinking about this Dharma talk, in part because I'm getting older, as old, I think, as most of you cannot imagine. <laughs> I'm almost 85. have a good memory. I remember uh, some names of people here, um, but what changes is um, confidence. I lose confidence in doing things in public, and I was used to doing this all the time in three languages <laughs> and uh, lectures. I now I feel very helpless (coughs) in front of you, I have to say. I just don't I, you know, uh, sort of um, thinking about this uh, Dharma talk and uh, which includes, of course, my relation to the Dharma. And my relation to the Dharma is ambivalent or it is, I once, I think, uh, bit aghast when I once said, well, we do live in the modern world. The term modern is I've never heard this being used here in the temple. But I've devoted much time in the past to theories of modernity, which were very powerful in the country in which I come from, Germany, because after the disaster of the Second World War and Nazism, we, we very consciously, actively, Try to move into a world past whatever had led to this disaster. And uh, so the theories like famous philosophers, Jürgen Habermas, for those who go to university, you've heard of him, uh, you know, put forward theories of modernity which clearly had to do with wanting to make a huge, uh, um, ones, and says that a, a big uh, separation from from a past in which uh, nationalism was acceptable, in which wars between European states were frequent, in which colonialism was mm-hmm. practiced relentlessly, in which um, and uh, and in which the tensions within countries not just in Germany, were powerful and and very hard to overcome. Um, So when I speak of, I'm thinking of the modern in a certain way as something that uh, the Buddhist world still has to face. Um, It means that certain traditions no longer have the force that they once had. It means that one cannot just rethink the traditions, but one has to confront the questions that come from a world which is profoundly secular. If it is not, it is usually worse, which is the world of Christian fundamentalism, which I think is the biggest threat that we face uh, in North America that it will overpower institutions and as, as those who follow the things in the United States, you can see what it means, the lack of tolerance, the aggressiveness that it is released under the auspices of religious symbols and promises which are all false. Uh, I live with a woman from Latin America. We used to get calls very often on Saturdays, uh, someone was at the door of our condominium and called us and why do we get the calls? I asked my neighbors, they didn't get these calls. Well, it turns out because she's Latin, she's supposed to be ready to join the fundamentalist church because that is where they go. They go to where the immigrants are and try to recruit their following there. We don't do this here. This is a great, plus in every sense of the term and um, this is the threat and I don't know if the resources that the older traditions provide us including Buddhism are sufficient and I don't know I'm too old to do much but for those of you who are younger I think it is very important to look at this as an incredibly dangerous development on this continent, plus the fact, as you know, that the majority of the budget of the United States goes into armaments, that the nuclear arsenal is larger than ever before. I have something that I was going to quote, uh, if I find it because I have my, my bag is full of materials. <laughs> This is my support, otherwise I feel totally hopeless. <laughs> 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 and, uh, it, it, but it's, it's one of the, uh, an organization where to just trace the amount of weapons production on this continent, which is horrible. And it is, it is uh, utterly uh, frightening. And none of our, um, and we are probably not in a position, to do much about that for some time in a, in a major political, political way. So we have to do it in a small way in the particular places in which we can. But there are the other voices that are quite wonderful. And uh, I am now, as a secular Buddhist, using a title from Stephen Batchelor, whom I have read extensively as someone who comes out of the uh, um, extensive uh, practice in Tibet, in Korea, and so on, who, uh, but who writes things like secular Buddhism, that is moving out of the frame of the old religions, uh, which I think we have to do. Uh, he, The way he puts it is, um, um, well, what I wanted to use is an example from from not so much his his text, but other texts. So the, to open to the uh, the term secular is maybe uh, very misleading. It comes from the discussions around Christianity, the, the secular versus the ecclesiastic. I don't think there is, I've not seen anything like that in the context of academic discussions of Buddhism. Maybe someone has. I have not seen this. Because, I mean, officially, I think, including with the tax department of the city, we are a church, a church-like institution. But uh, in practice, things are very different from each other. So, but let me begin from a, a very secular text, which is, is beautiful. Um, a poem by Louise Gluck. Louise Gluck is the poet, the poetess, I guess. Probably many among you know about her, who uh, was given the Nobel Prize for Literature, I think it was three years ago. And uh, I've read quite a few of her poems. They're very much like prose poems. but often she has developed a very interesting form. Also very interesting for me, someone coming from Germany, that she spells her last name. I mean, she's clearly Jewish, American Jewish, of German ori- Jewish origin. She spells her name Glück with the German umlaut to this day. It's quite interesting. I don't know uh, why, of course. Here, here's what she writes in one poem. Study of my sister. We respect here in America what is concrete, visible. We ask, what is it for? What does it lead to? My sister put her fork down. She felt she said as though she should jump off a cliff. That verse, I don't understand. I admit that once you hear the rest, you may wonder as well, but then she continues. A crime has been committed against a human soul as against the small child who spends all day entertaining herself with the colored blocks. So that she looks up, radiant at the end, presenting herself, giving herself back to her parents. And they say, what did you build? And then, because she seems so blank, so confused, they repeat the question. What, for me, you may have different readings of this or anything. Is so beautiful about this is that the child is lost, not lost, is absorbed into her activity without thought. When you think of meditation, no, no thought, just absorbed in the activity and completely, that is what matters. She is there and there is what she does. And is radiant at the end that is happy to have been like this, to have experienced this, and then giving herself back to her parents and the parents don't understand. The parents say, what did you build? They want a name. They want something that's identifiable that you can then repeat and say, oh, yeah, she has done this. Look at how wonderful our daughter is. She has put this together. Well, that what, what uh, Louise Gluck says is radiant at the end. This is, this is what is lost. So I sometimes wonder through the practice. Many of you who do it much more intensively than I may know better. Maybe that is what we would like to achieve. If there's anything to be achieved, rather than it happens, so that we are radiant at the end. If I could say this of my age, of myself at H-fred eighty-five, I would be more than happy. But <laughs> I'm far from. It. <laughs> so uh, I, his, uh This is a, a, um, one other. Another interesting comment of, uh, on a child this is the son. My son's very graceful. He has perfect balance. He's not competitive like my sister's daughter. And he says, she continues, my son won't play with her, the sister's daughter. He won't even ride bicycles with her. She accepts that. She's used to playing by herself. The way she does it, it isn't personal. Whoever won't play doesn't like losing. It's not that my son's inept, that he doesn't do things well, for watched him – I've watched him race. He's natural, effortless, Uh, right from the first he takes the lead, and then he stops. It is as though he was born rejecting the solitude of the victor, so it is like saying winning everything, right? So, but we live in a society in which winning is everything. You open the newspaper any day, every day, winning is everything, and nothing worse than in North America being a loser. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I was thinking, these are beautiful, very, if one uses the old Christian lingo, uh, secular, additions to our practice from corners that are, to so speak, not normally part of the canon. But I think we don't need to expand past the canon. Yeah. And there are other reasons for that. And the other reason I will present in a different way, uh, if I can find my... Uh, it is... I would just draw your attention to it. Maybe many among us read the New York Review of Books, or at least parts of it. Uh, There there is a wonderful article by a philosopher, uh, a research professor at the University of Chicago. Um, Her name is Martha Nussbaum. And that article speaks of animals. And it is called, What We Owe Our... Fellow animals, our fellow animals. So, in the tradition that I was brought up in when I was a child, that didn't have much chance. Well, in part because I was born at the beginning of the Second World War, and during the war we were growing up wild if we weren't killed. So, uh, but uh, in the, um, later on, when I was supposed to become a Catholic. Uh, uh, to think of human beings as animals was absolutely no-no. That is, to do be of human beings is anything other than, um, you know, what the, the Christian version or especially the classical Catholic version of the Bible said about creation and uh, Adam and Eve and, and, and so on and the role of God. Um, and then that we were to be Christ-like in some ways. Uh, Well, this was unthinkable to think of, uh, to have a text that says so directly, what we owe our fellow animals. Uh, We owe them, as she says, recognition. We owe them the recognition that they often are smarter than we are in certain ways. That is, that they have senses and capacities that we don't have. And our, our anthropocentric conception of things will be changed if we learn how uh, certain animal species uh, uh, live collectively how and so on. Which means, I mean, the famous example that everyone knows about are, of, of course, dolphins. And she mentions those, but she mentions various other species. And that's a part of a book and uh, Martha Nussbaum is very well known for her work on ethics. And that—that uh, that is kind of an expansion of the ethic to, to move past the anthropocentric into uh, a wider realm of being. My sense is that coming from Buddhism one finds that easier than, certainly than, than people who are um, seriously Christian and um, I think Islam is not open to that way of thinking at all nor is I think classical Hinduism I have the impression that I don't really know enough about Asia there are people here who know more so <laughs> but I don't know uh, what what in the uh, the react the theory of evolution, let's say, of species since Darwin has been a real shock for, I think, a large section of Christianity. I don't have the impression that it has been such a shock in, let's say, in East Asia. Um, it certainly is not accepted in Islam from what I, little I know. but. What Nussbaum goes through are these uh, examples of, for example, that we systematically underestimate the capas- capacities of animals. For example, communication capacities that birds have. And it's not that they are better than we, which you know, we don't have to make that mistake now in the other direction. It's just that they that they can do things that in their own particular realm that are not all that different from what we do. So what we, over a few thousand years, I think, have practiced is to put enormous distance between the natural world and human beings. That certainly is, I think, the inheritance of Europe. That has been the tendency, and one cannot deny that it has its origins in Christianity, that Christianity has had this effect and then uh, further on, of course, in modernity, the sense of uh, uh, a more Darwinistic interpretation of the same phenomena that we were the, the superior species among all, that, all other species. What Nussbaum suggests is to go, is take, a, take a step back and to put ourselves back into the natural world. I don't know whether this is still possible. I actually think it may almost be too late but I'm 85 for almost two months. Uh, I'm I'm not a good commentator. Younger people will be the the ones. Uh, As you know, there are predictions uh, from Hawking and others who say humanity has another thousand years on this planet. Uh, And I respect very much what this young Swedish woman, Greta, does. The uh, No school on Friday. This is, these are the kinds of actions that have to be taken if action, and action by itself would not be sufficient with other influences such as med- meditation and so on. But it is going to be dramatic. That is my sense that uh, for the first time, there really is a sense that humanity may not survive for very long. And that is. One of the reactions to that situation, in my view, are, is the growth of fundamentalism, i.e., everything has to be simpler, and and what, whatever, and one has to have the certainties that one's counted, even as the circumstances are such that they can no longer count. So I leave it there because the rest is in your hands, as most of you are with a few exceptions <laughs> whom I know are much younger than I. And you will face the, the, the dilemmas you know, that, and including, I think, the the extremisms that ra- arise, the political movements, the social movements that will be uh, terminate with the age of tolerance that came to us, at least in the European tradition, from the age of enlightenment. Um, horrible to end with that, really <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> I I, well I carry this with me, membrane surname and uh, and the and beautiful also photographs by uh, our colleague and uh, um, this is something that happens to me at age 84, almost 85. <coughs> it is, I suddenly forget names of people I know. And if you ask me an hour ago and they uh, nods, it does happen. Suddenly, suddenly you don't remember, I cannot remember my uh, one of my nieces. I can never remember her name. I always have to look it up in my calendar. Uh, I always remember her mother's name, but I don't remember. I, just, and there's nothing you can do. It just, you know, it takes really g- good patience. So here, here is an example of uh, where it just happened to me what happens with old age. And um, is that on Jolly? Sorry? On Jolly? Yeah, of course. <laughs> And then suddenly it's like, well, how crazy is it? I cannot remember, but I can't. <laughs> and suddenly it's there, of course. And Anjali did this beautiful text. And um, uh, Sanam so, was generous enough to let me continue next week. And at that point, I will turn to something more. I'll work through it carefully uh, if uh, that's still the plan by uh, 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 the work by uh, David Hinton, which some of us have discussed here, I think, mm. or oh, before the pandemic, no, we did. And uh, yeah, it was about almost, I forgot, is it almost three years ago? Mm. Jeez. Uh, and um, A China Root by David Hinton, Taoism Chan and original Zen. And I'm fascinated by the question of the uh, Taoism to me, to me, I feel more comfortable with it than with classical Buddhism, especially the Indian version. I find it much, too, too uh, much earthier, much more um, at home in ordinary reality, and uh, also in, in a closer to experience. But that's something, of course, one can have many seminars about. And uh, for any of you, you will who have different opinions may think differently about it. So that's what th- then the project is, and um, I'll continue with that uh, next week. Um, a final comment I had um, to do with um, what we learned from Toan in, uh, um, an- uh, there's another loss, right, in the Sangha, the lady who mm-hmm. who, oh, yeah. died who I think I have met Uh, Because I spent eight months once in Mexico and I remember very well the four months that I participated in the practice, uh, meditation practice of the Mexican Sangha. And Tuan on Saturday mornings would arrive in his old Volkswagen, which was transformed into a (laughs) tank-like vehicle because he used it in order to drive drive to the Mexican desert or semi-desert in uh, central Mexico, for I don't know if anyone has been in Mexico, but if you go north of the central area, it gets to be incredibly dry. There's hardly, and he has, uh, there are paintings that go of There are a few, especially after the absolutely rare rain, uh, there'd be suddenly flowers, plants, a few flowers. I mean, you have to you know, there's one there, there's one there, fifty, hundred meters between them of dryness. Uh, but I was always thinking of, and uh, every Saturday we would, he would come with this vehicle and we would then go to meditation in the center of Mexico City. And I'm just thinking, whether, uh, you know, I just wanted to acknowledge the loss of the Sangha Mexico with this lady who might possibly have met when I was there, Uh, but that's almost 20, that's 20 years ago, so Mm -hmm. in my case you begin to think in terms of decades, Mm -hmm. not years. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you.